everybody. My name is Petra Molnar. I'm a human rights lawyer, um, someone who works on migration and technology. And uh, today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my work on the intersection between surveillance, the COVID pandemic, and uh, people crossing borders. Thank you so much to Marcus and his team at the Center for Ethics for inviting me to do this today. Uh, it's really my pleasure to be able to share a little bit about what I focus on in my, my work and and hopefully engage with some of you later if you have further questions or if you're interested in reading about our work. So we really find ourselves now in an interesting time where the global pandemic is forcing a lot of us to rethink what our world currently looks like and what we want it to look like in the future. And as someone who works on issues around migration and people crossing borders, it's really been a unique time for me as well to think about where we see a lot of the policies around border enforcement going. Um, for example, refugees and immigrants and people on the move and people crossing borders have for a long time already been linked with disease and illness. And there's this idea that we've been seeing where people who are crossing borders are often linked with very apocalyptic terms like flood and wave underscored by growing xenophobia and racism that we see the world over. But not only are these links blatantly incorrect, they actually also legitimize these far-reaching state incursions and increasingly hardline policies of surveillance that we're increasingly seeing. And this kind of obsession with techno-solutionism or the idea that technological tools are somehow going to help us manage not only this global crisis, but also migration. What's been really interesting is just over the last month or so, there's been an amazing uh, growth of these new innovation tools kind of under the purview of fighting the global fight against COVID, but then also helping to track and surveil people. But the issue that I have with this is that pandemics, like any major event are political and they're not experienced by everybody the same way. And the concern is that as more and more states increasingly move towards what we sometimes call biosurveillance uh, to spread, to control the spread of the pandemic, the concern is that these types of models are and, and interventions are only going to actually disproportionately impact people who already have uh, a difficult time accessing their rights and civil liberties. So today what I will do is I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the work that I do on the intersection between borders, human rights and migration and technology. And then also talk a bit about some of the technologies that we're already seeing and how they will likely disproportionately impact people on the move. So for example, what we're already seeing is a lot of tracking technology uh, used to try and see you know, how the virus is spreading, who might be a vector, and, and to try and prevent the spread of COVID, which is all very important, of course. But it's also interesting because now we are seeing more and more states uh, lean on technology such as automated drones and other types of tech that's developed squarely within the private sector that has already been sold to us as a, a viable way to manage migration and now also stop the spread of the virus. But as our work indicates, if previous use of technology is an indication refugees, immigrants, people on the move, and people crossing borders will be targeted disproportionately. So for example, once we look at tools like so-called virus killing robots or cell phone tracking or quote unquote artificially intelligent thermal cameras, I mean, these are all tools that I think we need to critique in and of themselves. But once they're turned on and used against people crossing borders, they will have far reaching ramifications. 
Our work has already shown that migration uh, technological experiments are often discriminatory and they breach privacy and even endanger lives. So we can really kind of think about how is this going to look like in this new COVID and post-COVID era. But let me tell you a little bit about some of the tech that we've been tracking and uh, then we can talk a little bit about how this all maps onto the current kind of pandemic reality. So I started this work um, a few years ago, uh, looking at how Canada has been using uh, algorithms or automated decision-making, or sometimes people like to call it AI, to automate um, some of its visa applications, largely from India and China, two of the major source countries for our immigration. And we wrote a report uh, at the International Human Rights Program at the University of Toronto, and also with the Citizen Lab, looking at the far-reaching human rights implications of this. Since then, I've been looking at this type of technology more globally. I'm currently working with a wonderful team in Brussels at uh, European Digital Rights or EDRI. They're a great civil society organization that works on digital rights. We are now thinking about how to best document the lived experiences of people who are crossing borders and who are kind of at the forefront of a lot of this technological experimentation. And we are doing that from a European perspective, uh, but these types of technologies are happening the world over. So I already mentioned, for example, automated decision making in visa applications in Canada. But we've already seen, for example, algorithms also make their way into immigration detention and how they're used at the US-Mexico border to try and legitimize the hardline policies of the Trump administration to detain and deport people who are trying to claim asylum coming in from Central and Latin America. Other people are also documenting the use of biometrics, for example, um, which can mean anything from measuring uh, your gait or your fingerprints or your irises and how that's used in humanitarian settings in refugee camps. Uh, for example, in Zatari camp and Azraq camp in Jordan, um, a place where I worked in 2015, these use of technologies have been kind of sold as a way to make humanitarian systems more efficient and uh, to get people access to resources faster. So for example, instead of having a cash card that you need to use every week to get your weekly food rations, you have your eyes scanned. But you can imagine how coercive that can feel if you are in a situation where there's already an unequal power dynamic between the entity, such as an international organization giving you access to food and you having to subject yourself to this type of technological incursion. And this really gets at a lot of the kind of human rights issues that we're trying to unpack in our work as well. What does informed consent look like? How can you meaningfully opt out of these technologies? And this is something that we need to think about now that we're increasingly turning to technological solutions to help us think through and manage the COVID pandemic. We're also seeing an increasing kind of use of big data or population prediction models to help manage or control migration. This is done by a number of actors, uh, including governments, but also the UN and other types of entities that work on immigration issues. And this is something that we are now going to be seeing more and more of as countries and states think about ways that they can help manage the COVID pandemic, because data has become something very valuable to people. But the problem is data is not neutral, just like technology is not neutral, it's a tool that can be used for good or for, for bad applications, and it's not experienced equally by everyone. And that's really the concern that we are seeing here. With the increase of surveillance technology, 
uh, and the like that's being sold as kind of this surefire solution to really complex problems, it actually sometimes it forces us to not really think about some of the deeper reasons why forced migration might be happening in the first place or why people are crossing borders. It, people are complicated. This is something that I always like to, to bring up when I talk about these issues. You know, as someone who practiced refugee law and represented people in court, um, it was always very difficult to try and get even human decision makers to understand why someone was crossing a border because we have these really fixed ideas around people's experiences and lives and why they might be making the choices that they're making. And I've had cases in the past, for example, turn or really minute details that I would never remember if I was put to task. Um, for example, I had a case that I think I will never forget. And we lost in the end um, because the person I was working with, my client, couldn't recall whether the car that they were getting shot at from was white or gray. And the decision maker said, well, you know, here you said that the car was white, but now you're saying that it's gray. You're clearly lying. Therefore, you're untrustworthy. And then you will, you're likely lying about your refugee claim. Then we got denied. So it's interesting, right? Because I think th this kind of reasoning betrays a lot of things. It betrays a lack of understanding of how memory works, particularly for traumatized people. But it also makes me think about how opaque a lot of this decision-making actually is. And in immigration, sometimes when you have the same set of evidence presented to two different decision-makers, they will come up with completely different determinations based on the exact same set of evidence. And we know that that's a problem with human judges and human immigration officers. So what is this going to now look like if we start importing new technologies to help us manage migration? How can we make sure that the decisions that are made are transparent, not opaque and explainable? It's difficult enough with human brains to know how people make decisions. And now that we are thinking about new ways of either augmenting or replacing that decision-making, it becomes very difficult to know where the line between reasonable decision-making and unreasonable decision-making takes place. And a lot of this work now, you know, that we're trying to highlight I think it really, the, the, the kind of thing that I want to highlight is that it, it is a very discretionary phenomenon when we're talking about immigration decision-making. Why somebody crosses a border, whether they should be reunited with their spouse, whether they should be allowed to adopt a certain child, whether you will get your temporary visa application, whether you qualify for refugee status. These are all very, very difficult decisions. And now that we're seeing new technology make some of these decisions or even rely on biased data, the concern is that this is going to really have a profound impact on people's rights. So what I will do now is I'll highlight some of these uh, examples of how internationally protected human rights can be a useful lens through which to understand just how far reaching this, these technologies are. And then I will bring it back to some of the COVID um, thinking around how we need to really be careful about the type of technology and surveillance and automation that we are now increasingly leaning towards. So. For example, there's a, there's a number of ways that we can analyze um, the kind of far-reaching human rights impacts of this technology. But I would like to focus on two. One is the freedom uh, from discrimination and equality rights, and the other one was privacy rights. So as I've tried to highlight already, we already know that technology is not neutral and it's not experienced by everyone the same way. And People who work on technology and human rights have been highlighting how, for example, algorithmic decision-making already has a very bad track record on things like race and gender. 
But how will that map onto the particular context of migration? We already know that a lot of the system is stacked against the people that are trying to make refugee claims or try and relocate across borders. And a lot of the discrimination that's inherent in the, the data sets and the technology that's being used can really have far reaching impacts. I always like to bring up this example. It's, it's a little bit of a kind of an extreme example, but I think it highlights really why we need to think about some of these issues. So a few years ago now, for example, there was a, an algorithm that was developed at Stanford University, um, which is now perhaps infamously known as the GADAR uh, experiment, where they were basically saying that they developed a tool that could discern your sexual orientation based on facial recognition. Now, luckily that was debunked as something that was inaccurate. And in and of itself, it's a huge problem that this kind of tool was even developed and that funding was given to a project like this. But from the context specific angle of migration, let's think about the kind of far reaching impacts that this can have. We know, for example, that people are coming to countries to claim protection on sexual and gender based identity grounds. So what if there are certain repressive governments that decide to use this new tool that somebody developed to basically discern whether somebody is quote unquote gay enough to qualify for refugee status. That's hugely problematic. What about privacy rights as well? And this example also highlights, right, that we need to think about how privacy is experienced contextually. And I, there is now a growing understanding that certain groups that are maybe more vulnerable or more marginalized have what's called the differential expectation of privacy, or they need to have their data protected at a slightly you know, more stringent way to make sure that any kind of data breach does not get back, for example, to a repressive government, or, you know, if they are being sent back to their country, maybe we need to make sure that the data that was collected on them isn't shared with that country. The problem is with technology and with data is that it flows across borders very easily, particularly when we're talking about these opaque discretionary gray zones like migration, like border decision making. And what happens with that data, really, we need to think a lot about that, particularly now when we are thinking through novel ways of collecting more and more information on people as the COVID pandemic progresses. The one other example I would like to highlight that is quite interesting and egregious from the human rights perspective is the introduction of so-called AI lie detectors at the border. I'm referring to the iBorder Control, a project that was um, rolled out in the European Union where essentially so-called facial recognition based AI lie detectors were going to be used to determine whether you're telling the truth at the border and whether you should be then processed for secondary screening. Now that was debunked as not being accurate, but again, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. What would that look like if, for example, you're a person coming from a different cultural context and who might be presenting in a way that maybe the system isn't ready for? What if I've had people, for example, uncomfortable to make eye contact with even a human decision maker of the opposite gender because that's not culturally appropriate? But what if that's then a negative inference made about their um, truthfulness or plausibility, right? Or what about even again that whole idea of trauma and memory like that example from practice that I brought up about that one client that couldn't remember whether the car was white or gray. I mean we know that brains don't process information in the same way when you are healthy and well adjusted as opposed to when you are in a traumatic situation. Um, you know as someone who has had difficult periods in my life 
I, for example, don't remember certain months of my life because it's really difficult to then have your brain process that type of information. And yet we are holding people who are crossing borders to an incredibly high standard when it comes to recall and memory. And now we're using these new tools to try and find ways to make them seem like they are lying and not telling the truth. Really, really problematic that that's the kind of resources that states and private entities are turning their minds to. And again, I think the, not to belabor the point about uh, COVID, but because we are now thinking about new ethical issues and new human rights issues that are coming out as a result of this pandemic. I mean, with this increasing push to make certain communities more knowable and trackable and get more information on them, the concern is that we are going to be leaning on these really problematic assumptions around, you know, whether someone's telling the truth about how they're feeling, for example, and what kind of symptoms they're having, whether somebody is lying about their travel patterns, and how is this technology going to be able to discern that? Um, you know, I mean, we, we just don't have enough information really about what is being proposed and how it's being done. And yet in the last month, um, some of us have been tracking this type of work already. Uh, it's been quite remarkable at how many kind of private sector solutions have been brought up to kind of address this pandemic. And we know, of course, that the private sector is oftentimes a key player in the development and deployment of technology. The concern from a human rights perspective is that sometimes what we sometimes call responsibility laundering, or less eloquently put, passing the hot potato back and forth, um, sometimes that can occur with responsibility. Because let's say that the public entity like a state wants to develop a new tool, but they don't really have the resources to do it themselves. Then they hire a private actor to do it for them. But the problem is, legally speaking, responsibility doesn't work the same way when you're dealing with a public entity or a private entity. And then if you're an individual that's been harmed by this technology, what do you do? You know, the public entity can say, oh, you know, not our problem. We didn't really develop this in-house. The private entity can say, well, it's not really our problem either because we are protected under IP legislation, uh, sorry, intellectual property legislation or another corporate shield. And it's not really our problem either. And then you can find yourself falling through the cracks, something that the communities I work with find themselves in a lot. So the concern is, again, the role of the private sector and the private actors that are inherently kind of baked into technological development and deployment. And it's been, it's been quite interesting to see how the tech sector and kind of big tech has been positioning itself over the last few weeks, kind of almost as a savior for all of us to think through, you know, how we're going to get past this COVID pandemic. And yet, do we really need another hackathon? Not really, we need a redistribution of vital resources. We need free healthcare for people regardless of their immigration status or their, their position in life. We need more empathy and kindness towards people crossing borders. We don't necessarily need another technological solution. Particularly when we know that there are areas in the world where you know, just even access to healthcare could be improved. Another technological tool, I'm not really sure how that's going to help us. Now, I'm not saying that technology can't be used for good, and I think there's a lot of interesting work uh, out there being done on how we can think about novel solutions for a lot of the problems. But the issue is, is that using kind of a Band-Aid solution or like another sexy app to help us, that doesn't really get at a lot of the structural problems that we have in our world when it comes to why people feel maybe forced to migrate or compelled to migrate or cross borders. 
you know, we're not really talking about the kind of underlying issues of economic inequality or, you know, con constant conflict in uh, areas of the world, or even, you know, the unequal resource distribution between the West and the rest. Um, these are the root causes of why, you know, there is conflict in the world, why there is displacement and forced migration. And these are really the, the issues that can actually exacerbate the spread of global pandemics like COVID-19. So techno-solutionism really doesn't get us that far. Um, instead, we need to really think about how these technologies operate in the particular context and that we find ourselves in, both geopolitically in the middle of a pandemic, but also contextually when we're thinking and talking about particular communities that are often already disenfranchised and marginalized and maybe don't have access to the same types of mechanisms of rights and redress that, that you and I might have. And maybe I will leave you with a little bit of a philosophical idea, not that I'm much of a philosopher, but I, I like to sometimes think through some of these issues. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the whole idea that connects this together is that migration management really is about making certain populations in the world trackable, intelligible, and controllable. And the fact that right now there is very little governance and very little regulation around this technology, it's kind of a free-for-all. Everyone can develop and deploy tools and apps and whatever they want. And now doubly so under this, the guise of the pandemic and a massive global social emergency, uh, sorry, global health emergency, this lack of governance, I think really shows that migrants and vulnerable communities become a viable testing ground for technology that will then be rolled out in other ways. And really it, it's actually a conversation also about world making, who gets to decide what we imagine as possible and what kind of world do we wanna build? Who are the actors that are involved? Usually it's you know policymakers, private actors, lawyers, um, academics, but not really the affected communities that are around the table that get to participate in this kind of conversation. So we really need to figure out what we're doing here when it comes to thinking about new ways um, of relating to each other. Now, of course, during this time of exception and this you know, global event that we find ourselves in, but also afterwards, because the pandemic will end, hopefully sooner rather than later. But then the world that we are left with will be one where maybe more inequality is actually present. The thing with tech is that technological tools can very quickly become tools of oppression and surveillance. And instead of actually helping us, they might deny us agency and dignity, and then they can contribute to a climate that's increasingly more hostile towards each other, but also towards disenfranchised and marginalized communities like people on the move. So again, just to reiterate, a lot of the technological solutions out there already that are being proposed don't really address the root causes of why we find ourselves in this moment. And what we're going to do about it will, I think, depend on a conversation that has to include people that are not normally around the table. Because really at the end of the day, unless all of us are healthy, which includes marginalized communities, no one is. So I think I will leave it there. Um, I really hope that some of the ideas that I talked about resonate with you. And if you want to get in touch, my email is petra.molnar at utoronto.ca. Um, I will also share some resources about the current work that we are doing in Europe with Edri and some other really great partners like a small NGO in Greece called Homo Digitalis and Privacy International and a few other groups. So thank you very much for your interest and uh, have a good day.